Sound check. Sound check. Sound check. One, Sound two. check. Sound check. Almost a year into surviving a pandemic, and we realize now more than ever that healthcare and health policy should have been at the center of the political stage of our country. In just a few weeks, we will be hitting our quarantine anniversary, yet there's still no sight at the end of the tunnel of this country's battle against COVID-19. There's no denying that the pandemic opened our eyes to the current state of our country's healthcare system. One can't help but wonder if the people for the far-flung areas still receive the healthcare they are entitled to. In today's episode of Telmed About It, Cebu Institute of Medicine presents a talk on the Dr. Sidabarrios program of the Philippines. Tune in and learn about the DTTB and how they're made to be. Disclaimer, what brings you in today is produced by the Association of Philippine Medical Colleges, Student Network Visayas, Regional Health, Health, Health Policy Committee, in partnership with Cebu Institute of Medicine and its participating organizations, Total Outreach for Community Health, and Alpha Mu Sigma Phi. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and host and do not necessarily reflect APMCS and Visayas, the participating medical school and its partnering organizations. Good afternoon, APMC Student Network Visayas. Welcome to another episode of Tell Med About It. Doctors to the Barrio and How They're Made to Be. Jeff Domayo, CIM PBL2. And I am Miguel Tristan Rivalde, CIM PBL2. And we are your hosts we are your for today. Hosts for today. Good afternoon, Rebs. Good afternoon, Jeff. So, how's your first week of classes going on? I mean, you know, now, first week, um, it's getting back to the group of things. Uh, we just had our break and now we're going back into the grind, into the med school grind. And um, how was your first week, Jeff? 
I mean, it's always the same every first week. I think it's always the hardest week in any start to the task because you always have that inertia. It's like a week of a break. In breaks, you read, but not as much as you would read on normal class days. So you'll have to adapt to that new level of reading. Speaking of adaptation, I think we've seen a lot of that during this time of the pandemic because before, you could just go out freely. And we took that for granted. Now we have to go out and wear masks, even face shields. And that's how we adapted to going out in the middle of this pandemic where our health is at risk. Yes, Jeff, even us as medical students, we needed to adapt um, to the changing con contexts here in our pandemic. Like personally, as a study outer who goes to study out almost every day, um, last year, now I don't really, I don't get out at all, so I am here just studying at home, and it really affected my studies. Uh, however, uh, we are med students, and we are made to be resilient and to adapt to the changes that we are experiencing now, especially mm. especially during these times. Indeed, but adaptation could only go so far. Speaking of adaptation and pandemic response, what we've seen so far throughout this. Uh, throughout this pandemic is really mind-changing. It's really eye-opening as to what's happening in our current society. What I often hear from people when they talk about the pandemic is that the pandemic is somewhat of a great equalizer because the same virus affects people different, uh, similarly. But do you believe that to be true, Rebs? Is the pandemic a great equalizer? Honestly, in my opinion, I don't think it's a great equalizer because yes, we're facing the same virus. Yes, we're facing the same circumstances, but we all live in different contexts. We as humans or we um, who live in these communities, we all have our own health status. We have different predispositions to disease and that can affect our interaction with the virus. Even as communities, we see communities who are more equipped um, in terms of health um, system capacities. We also see communities that are not as um, equipped to handle this kind of emergency. Indeed, Rebs. In my opinion, as opposed to an equalizer, I think it's more of an amplifier. It amplifies already existing, uh, existing rifts or differences when it comes to access to healthcare, as well as different social services. If you look at, for example, the simple going out to another place for your work, you need certain swab tests and all that. And these are expensive for specific people in different classes. While for other people, they could freely do that just to go out for vacation, right? So I think it amplifies already existing differences when it comes to access during this pandemic. Speaking of differences, most of the things to seen throughout this pandemic are what we see in television or in social media, right? Because we can't go out anymore. I mean, our going out is limited. So most of what we see or what we know is what just what we watch. And most of the coverage for this pandemic that we have seen is in large cities where uh, the cases are very high. Because these are also the places where hospitals are concentrated. Which makes you wonder, how are those, how are those areas, small towns, far-flung barangays doing during this pandemic? considering they already have limited access plus the reallocation of funds from the uh, from for, of health in order to control this pandemic how do you think they're doing reps 
For me, I'm actually not sure since after all, you just said it yourself. We only digest what we watch from social media and we all, and the content that we have been getting from social media, from the media, is those large cities that are greatly hit in, by the pandemic in terms of numbers. However, if I would try to remember my college days and how to analyze rural health systems, I'd say that yes, there may be a possibility that the virus may have a hard time reaching those areas since they are relatively remote. However, once the virus um, enters those areas or causes an outbreak in those areas, there may be some health systems that are unequipped to, uh, to address that concern. And um, that's, where, that's where things get critical. And also maybe speaking from a media perspective, I guess um, large cities really get the attention because they're the ones with the most cases, they're the ones with the more palpable, um, palpable filling of the hospitals. Uh, we're running out of ICU beds. Uh, even uh, the Department of Health website for their COVID-19 tracker shows um, cases by cities also, as well as rural areas. So we can see uh, how the virus is doing with those areas. Going back to my point earlier, I think, I, I think that's a good point that cities, I mean, these areas are, are really struggling, but I think that's only not now during the pandemic. It's, or, it's always been like that, but it's just amplified by what's happening right now, right? So, but as you said, what we know is only limited to what we see and we hear, what we read in media. It's really different to be able to go there to serve and to work with these people, right? And I think that's relevant in this afternoon's discussion. Yes, very much so. It is very relevant because today, um, as what uh, the intro spoke a while ago, we're going to be talking about the Doctors to the Various program by the, the, the Department of Health. And it is such an honor for our guests um, to be with us today to talk about the program. Indeed. What our guest this afternoon is a doctor to the barrio. So just to get it up, just to inform people who don't, don't know what this program is, I'm just going to give what DTTV means. It means a doctor to the barrio. Uh, specifically what they are, what they do, and how they become one. That is what we are going to talk about this afternoon. Yes, indeed. And maybe just maybe to inspire um, our medical students and those who are watching to our Facebook Live, we talk about the experiences of being a doctor to the barrio. We talk about how they interact with their community as a municipal health officer. We uh, talk about how they're faring in this pandemic even since um, just like every one of us, just like us med students, of course, um, the doctors would have to adapt as well. Indeed, indeed. And without further ado, allow me to uh, introduce our speaker. He is a graduate of BS Medical Technology Cum Laude from the Suleiman University, uh, graduated Doctor of Medicine from the Cebu Institute of Medicine, and currently taking up Master's in Public Health from the University of the Philippines, Manila. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Alfie Kalingasyon. Good afternoon, Doc. Hello, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How? Good afternoon, Rebs. Good afternoon, Doc. How are you doing, Doc? I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, thank you very much for asking. Seeing both of you makes me miss CIM more. 
and seeing you doc inspires us to work more so that we see what we want to be in the future thank you very much for being with us this afternoon so just to give you a, a view of what's gonna happen this afternoon uh, before the start of this podcast we collected questions from uh, different places or from different medical schools in the visayas area we collated those questions to ask them to you And with those questions, Doc, we hope that we get to answer them. And there's really no need to worry. This is just a smooth sailing conversation. And um, there's no need to be too formal for us. Um, after all, the goal of this podcast is to inform um, our fellow medical students as well as those who are interested to work in public health. Thank you very much for this opportunity to speak to everyone, to young, brilliant minds like you to talk about something that I am passionate about, something that is close to my heart, which is community medicine or public health in general. Thank you, Doc. Now, shall we proceed to the first question? The first question yes, we were asked is on the doctor to the barrio and how they're made to be. Can you give us a general perspective of what the doctor to the barrio program is? All right. The Doctor to the Barrios program, or simply DTTB, was established under the previous DOH secretary, Dr. Juan Fabier, in 1993. Uh, and its main objective is to address the lack of doctors practicing in rural communities in the Philippines. And since then, there are about 38 batches already who have been deployed to various geographically isolated and disadvantaged areas or what we term as GIDA in the Philippines to work as a primary care and public health physician. Uh, this is deployed all over the Philippines from Batanes all the way to Tawi-Tawi. And to, the main objective of the program was to ensure uh, quality healthcare services being rendered most especially to our depressed, marginalized, and underserved areas through the deployment of a competent and community-oriented doctor. Basically, that is the gist of what the DTTB program is all about by the Department of Health. Seems oh. like a very noble job, but also seems very challenging. Isn't it, Reps? Yes, it does seem challenging indeed because you don't just work as a physician for the people. Instead, you work with the community to build a sustainable and strong health system so that um, in the future or if there are any uh, emergencies or any emerging cases like this one, the, the, like the pandemic we're facing right now, the health system can be ready. It really begs me to question, Doc. Um, for example, we're currently, Jeff and I are currently medical students and we're interested to uh, become a doctor to the barrio. What are the qualifications? I think I've also heard about the DOH scholars. Is this program only um, exclusive to DOH scholars or, or can other um, future physicians that are interested apply for it as well? So basically, the minimum requirement uh, for any applicant, any physician who wanted to be a doctor to the barrio is to pass the physician licensure examination or the PLE. Uh, as well, he must be a uh, certified to be a good moral character and physically and mentally fit. And of course, I think the most important is that he or she is willing to work on depressed and hard-to-reach areas for at least three years. 
and with a very keen interest on public health. Now, going back to the question if it is exclusive to DOH scholars, in a general context, there are two types of doctors to the barrios. We have DOH scholars, as mentioned. Uh, these scholars are required to undergo the DDTB program right after passing the physician licensure examination. While the second set of DDTBs are the walk-in DDTBs. These are uh, not required to have the program, but rather have the passion to serve the community, most especially the less privileged population in the Philippines. I, for in, an example, is a walk-in DTTB. Uh, I personally applied to the program, just like you apply for a residency training in an hospital. Thank you for that answer, Doc. Because we received a question from one of the medical schools, I think a DOS, uh, DOH scholar, who asked if the if a DOH scholar could delay going as a doctor to the barrio and take residency first. Okay. But I think, Doc. Uh, yeah. Yes, Doc. Uh, sorry, as mentioned, uh, those uh, the DOH scholars are required to pursue the DTTB program or what we term as the return of service right after passing the physician licensure examination. If they want to pursue a specialization or go into residency training, they can do it right after their return of service under the DTTB program. Oh, okay, that clarifies things. I hope the question who asked this question is listening right now. Thank you very much for that, Doc. Now we have another question asking if the people under the DTTB are required to take public health management courses during their service. Right. So one benefit of being a doctor to the barrio is a chance for a sponsored masteral degree program by the Department of Health. So in the previous years, the masteral program is under the Development Academy of the Philippines or DAP in Tagaytay with a master's degree in public health, major in health systems development. But starting batch 36, uh, that was around 2019, the masteral program of the DTTB students are now being handled by the University of the Philippines, Manila, uh, still with a master's in public health, major in health systems development. But uh, this is given to you, uh, not required, but it is not also compulsory, but it is up to the DTTB if he or she would want to have a master's degree program. And as for me, I would recommend uh, those who are in the program to have the master's degree because it is a opportunity uh, to develop, to hone our knowledge about public health since we are serving the community. Yes, um, coming from a health systems management course in college, I can say for sure that being a clinician is different from being a public health professional. And that is um, and, it, and, it, and it is helpful for those who want to, those who are in the program to take a master's in public health, which is currently handled by the by UP Manila, correct, Doc? Yes. Just uh, just to ask further on on that, Doc, how does the master's uh, program work? Is it research based, or do you have to go to regular uh, classes? Is it online based? Uh, from the previous years, before the pandemic or the pre-COVID times. Uh, it is uh, uh, twice a year, uh, they have to go to Manila for around three weeks to a month to have the face-to-face -face classes uh, under, they will be uh, in-house in a hotel 
and every day that's from Monday to Saturday they have classes for the masteral program but as of today since we have travel restrictions uh, it is more of an online learning but uh, as mentioned when the travel restrictions is uh, able we are able to travel once again then we do a face-to-face -face classes with UP Manila in Manila. Thank you very much Doc. Now we have another question from uh, the students or the medical schools. Uh, they're asking if you get to choose where you are assigned when you are a DTTB or is it based on the DOH's assessment of what, which area needs a DTTB? Okay, this question is also frequently asked by a lot of people, uh, especially those who are, who are aspiring to be a DTTB because the area you will be assigned is also very important and crucial. So during our time, uh, when we joined the program, it was still the national office of the Department of Health who handles the screening and employment process. So when we pass our application in the national office, we also had our interview and examination in the national office of the Department of Health. And after getting into the program, all accepted DTTBs were gathered in one place to have a national orientation. And during this time, during the national orientation, uh, a list, a set of municipalities already, uh, uh, already given to the batch by the Department of Health. So it is up to the batch on the decision making how or who will be assigned to these areas. So the Department of Health already specific areas those who really need to have a doctor. However, uh, during this time of pandemic, again, where travel is not very, or it is restricted, the application process is now being handled by the regional offices. So for example, in uh, Region 7, it is in the Department of Health Center for Health Development, which is located in Cebu City. So once you applied into the DOH Region 7, then you will most likely be assigned within the region. So still, uh, the Department of Health 7 will give a list of areas and then it is up to the batch to decide whom will go to a certain municipality. But uh, during this time, it would be little, uh, the choices would be a little smaller because you'll be confined within the region compared to our time when we can choose from Region 1 all the way to Region 7. Can I ask a follow-up question regarding that system? Um, the way you said that the region, the region, the regional office will be the one that will filter out the most needed areas, and it is up for the batch for them to choose. Will this system remain even if, let's say, travel restrictions are lifted already or um, things get better for the country? Uh, for now, I cannot answer the question. It depends on the Department of Health, but. I think uh, it would be better if the national office would handle the application process so that you will have more option to choose and you are not confined to a certain region in terms of... Uh, Doc, just an additional question. Uh, you said earlier that uh, the DTTV has to serve for at least three years. So it's a three-year contract? Uh, yes. Actually, when we applied, we thought that it was only two years. But during our time, we were the first batch and we only learned about it during our national orientation that the program will last for three years. And personally, uh, I would think that it's better because 
two years is really not enough for you to have a significant impact in the community. And three years would really be more comprehensive in terms of something that you want to achieve within the community level. So I believe that the three-year program is better than the two-year program. I, I think I think I share the same sentiments because uh, uh, being established in a certain area to create those uh, needed systems or to create those needed connections within the area, I think it really takes uh, more time. And yes, I do agree with that because systemic change is not just it's not the same as let's say we're managing as clinicians that we prescribe these right away. Um, it takes to it takes to get to know the community for example you do a health profile of the community um you do studies on hazards around the community what um diseases are most common in the community and ways to prevent them and this cannot be done in my opinion and i think um you guys share this too that this has to be the burden has to be shared with the health officers as well as the community because after all it is their health that um, is the goal. Uh, I just uh, just another question, Doc. Uh, you said that the National Office of the DOH handles and chooses which municipalities need doctors. How often are these lists updated? Like, is it every three years they're checked if they still need a DTTB or? These areas are being screened uh, annually or yearly. So they would determine if these areas are lack doctors or the population of the community needs more doctors. So it depends, but generally the criteria for allocation of DTTB are those that are depressed, underserved, and hard to reach areas, critical and six class municipalities. However, as mentioned, necessarily they do not need to be on the fifth or sixth class municipalities. Uh, even a first-class or second-class municipalities can be given a DTTP as long as uh, there will be additional doctors needed in order to achieve the doctor-to-population ratio, which is one doctor to every 20,000 population. Uh, on that question, Doc, uh, in the current uh, state of the Philippines, are we achieving that ratio nationally? No. The, by studies, the current ratio that we have is one doctor is to 33,000 population. So we really need more doctors in the public health aspect in able to achieve this ratio of one is to population. And also, I think there's more to that ratio because we don't know the densities of doctors based from those who are mostly in cities, those who are specialists. Um, we also don't know if that ratio still applies to the most um, remote areas um, in the country. So yes, there has there's a lot to be done, and I hope that a lot more med medical students are interested to take um, public health and community medicine in the future. Speaking of interest to be a part of the DTTB program, you uh, mentioned earlier, Doc, that you took up the DTTB program right after you graduated. If you could go back or if you could talk to new graduates now, would you tell them to go directly to DTTB before taking up a residency course? Or would you suggest to take up a residency or a specialization first before going to the DTTB? 
I think just like any other PLE passers, I also had my fair share of difficult times of thinking and rethinking what path I should proceed. Should I go immediately to residency training or should I take a year off or do a moonlighting stint or will I apply through the DTTV? Considering all my options during that time, my passion for serving the community prevailed. So that is why I applied uh, for the DTP program right after passing the PLE. Now, regarding the question, if a certain doctor already had a plan and decided on a certain career path, whether he or she want to be a pediatrician or a surgeon or an internist, then go for it. But if you are still in confusion of what residency training program or you have the passion of helping the marginalized sector in the Philippines, then I would definitely recommend the program. Thank you, Doc. I think Grams needed that answer because he mentioned in our talks before this that he actually wanted to be a DTTB. Yes, that was one of my options when I was considering uh, my path uh, post-college. So yes, I applied to a medical school, but after that, what next? Uh, so that program definitely um, gave me an option because, again, you did mention, Doc, that there is a Master's of Public Health program, and that is the field that I really want to work in. So yes, your answer really gave me some additional spur and additional thoughts to consider um, once I get to that uh, point in my life. So yes, Doc, thank you so much. And Rebs, can I just add something? Uh, luckily for us, we are also the first batch given the privilege that while we are on DTT program, we also given the privilege to have a practice-based residency training in family and community medicine. Therefore, we are having the DTTB program plus the Master's in Public Health program, plus we are currently undergoing residency training in community medicine. So essentially, Doc, that's basically three stone, three birds with one stone. Yes, so maybe that would impact And as if Rebs and all those people who want to be a part of the DTT pro DTTB program needs more enticement, let's now move on to the role of the DTTB in the community, though. So we also have uh, we also collected questions from different schools uh, regarding this. So the first question is: Can you give us uh, or can you describe to us the daily life of a DTTB in your given community? The daily life of a DTTB varies each day. Uh, you don't know what to expect to happen on a certain day. You may set your day for a whole day medical consultations, but emergencies can happen. And you need to respond to these emergencies, whether it is a maternal delivery or even doing medical legal examinations, like someone was shot in your, within your area of assignment or someone drowned in your area of assignment. And of course, with this pandemic, there are a lot of provincial and LGU meetings so uh, the day-to-day, -day, in general, uh, we are required for a 40-hours week schedule that is 8 hours per day, Monday to Friday, 5 p.m. So that is our time in and time out. However, in reality, just like any other doctors, we are on call 24-7 for emergency cases. So... Uh... This seems like a very big scope for one doctor to be doing, Doc. So uh, you mentioned that 
uh, people could uh, join the DTTB program right uh, right after medical school. And it seems like uh, even though it's a very general uh, field, it also has very spe- uh, specialized like. For example, specialized emergencies. Do you receive additional trainings before entering or being deployed into the field? Uh, ideally, there should be trainings. For example, when doing medical legal examinations. However, during this time of pandemic, uh, a lot of trainings were cancelled because of the travel restrictions, and we have no other choice but to perform this duty. Because there will be no other doctors who would be doing such things, just like delivering twins or breach presentation. Even though you are not fully uh, equipped with the skills, but you have no choice but to learn and relearn what you learn in medical school or even during your internship. So we handled and everything from pediatric patients to adult patients to surgical patients. And as well as our uh, our OB and gynae cases. So yes, doc. It basically once you apply to be a DTTP, it's like a lot of specialized knowledge that has to be learned at once. And most of these cases are even emergent cases. So stat there's like stat relearning of a special specialized knowledge. So doc, let's try to move um, beyond being a clinician because like one of our other medical schools asked this question. Um, in the community setting, what is the role of a DTTB in health education? Being assigned in hard to reach areas or far flung areas, it is expected that the people in the community has a lack of health information, particularly those living in the highlands or even in separate small islands. So we address this by doing or personally going to these areas, whether by sailing through rough seas or riding habal-habal along uncemented roads or walking in muddy areas. And yes, I have experienced all of this. So a DTPB must fulfill his or her role as a community educator and as a social mobilizer in order to address the lack of information regarding health. And reality-wise, not all Filipinos are well-informed, most especially their rights on health. Uh, therefore, it is the job of a DTTB to address these concerns through community engagement, such as doing demonstrations or, if needed, even house-to-house campaign. Uh, uh, just an additional question or an extension to that, Doc. How receptive are the are the people in the Parklang areas to? Uh, this information. Uh, let's say, for example, citing uh, there was a statement given by the president one time where, where he said, "If you don't, uh, if you can't buy disposable masks, you could just put gasoline on your mask and reuse it." So when it comes from a person of that authority, and then they hear it, and then you come in and tell them that that's not supposed to be it, how receptive are they to this information, though? In general. Uh, People in the community have high respect to doctors. So they listen, they actually listen. So every time we go house to house, barangay to barangay, they just need that piece of information coming from authority, specifically from the doctors. Once they hear it from us, then they would believe us. And they are very receptive to change. Although as expected, there are also people, especially those the older generations that are 
uh, medyo not receptive to change. And it is really a tough decision or a tough job for DTTV on how to try to convince. And I think it is very important the way, the manner of how you convey these people. Yes, and I guess that reigns true, Doc, because um, medicine is an art, but also communicating health is also an art. There has to be some practice because um, one can't just spur out information and expect people to follow them. And um, communicating health, especially to these areas, require um, an understanding of the contexts of those of the people who are there. Yeah, and I, I really believe there's like there's an abundance of information, scientific information out there. It's just that the bridging is needed because uh, what's accessible to uh, the educated, for example, or the people who who are uh, in a different, uh, for example, in the academe, is not readily accessible to these people. And I think there really needs to be an improvement in that accord. So uh, speaking of resistance and tradition of the older people, doc. How do you deal with uh, people and their beliefs in traditional medicine? Like they come in to you and say that they consulted uh, like uh, Tambalan, for example, about their illness and they suggested something which is opposed to what you have prescribed, for example. How do you deal with these people? Okay. Uh, in community setting, we often hear the words, uh, we use this medicine because So these are very common phrases. And health teaching is very important. So every time I do medical consultations, it is an opportunity for us to do health teaching and address those unregulated and unverified information. However, uh, let me just clarify that traditional medicines are not always wrong. When we hear a certain practice in the community, we should verify or ask about these things. Because remember, there are also herbal medicines approved by the Department of Health. And these have evidence-based medicine, called the use of lagundi for treatment of a cough. So do not always disregard these traditional uh, medicine or traditional things that they do. Always ask first if how and who uh, did, did they prepare the, the, these herbal medicines. And of course, try to adjust if it needs to be addressed. I think I think that's a, a very important point. Not just to uh, just to put a, a more or more emphasis on it. Traditional medicine is not tantamount to just a uh, quack medicine right away because uh, they've been doing this for years, and some of them do have uh, scientific uh, value in them. It's just that yeah, it it ne it needs to be delineated as to what needs to be improved and what needs to remain there because. <clears throat> And I guess also, Doc, this uh, gives us an opportunity to talk about uh, the differences in terms of GTV patients in the virus compared to the hospitals. Because um, we see that even in terms of beliefs, there are already differences that we can observe. And um, in terms of predisposition to accept care, it, there's also a difference between those people. There's, there's also a difference between those. So, Doc, um, what can you say are significant differences um, in between treating patients in the barrios in those areas compared to, let's say, hospitals? I think the most significant difference between patients in the barrios and treating in the hospital is that we in the barrios are being overly resourceful. Uh, as doctors, we are trained to be resourceful in our medicines, in our 
medical equipments, most especially in the government hospitals compared to private hospitals. But in the community setting, we have to go beyond the normal resourcefulness. Uh, we have to work with a very, very, very limited supply of medicines and medical supplies and equipment. And knowing that these populations that we are serving cannot even afford the basic medical health care or hospitalizations. So the big difference between that is we have to be overly resourceful with the things that we have. Speaking of limited resources, Doc, uh, how about, uh, how do you, for example, there's a patient in a far-flung barrio who needs uh, certain medication like uh, every day. And uh, does the DOH provide certain medications, uh, maintenance medications to these people? Uh, yes, there are certain medications that are being by the Department of Health. But of course, not all medications are being uh, given for free. Uh, if we really need to give a patient a certain medications and we all know that we cannot, they cannot afford, then we could channel, as doctors, we could to help them channel where specifically offices they can go, enable for them to achieve or get uh, help. We can channel them to the uh, DSWD for them to have financial help or uh, any non-government organizations that can help them in order to have the appropriate medical care that they need. But likewise, uh, as mentioned, as doctor to the barrios, we should also know when to refer the patient to a higher facility. It's not always being a hero that, yes, I can handle this kind of case. It is, we also have medical knowledge that we cannot do this anymore. We, there, is, there is a need for a higher uh, private or uh, higher public or private facility for, enable for the patient to have an access to healthcare, better healthcare access. So it is also our job to refer the patient from the barrio to the tertiary or secondary hospital or even district hospitals. So uh, we really work as a whole, not just clinical, but also in the medical aspect. And yes, Doc, I think that's true because um, especially um, faced with a context or an area where um, things used for health aren't as accessible, there is a need to be resourceful and there is a need to um, strengthen the system so that um, appropriate care can be given to um, our constituents in the community. Um, may we ask also, Doc, um, Aside from um, aside from this, are there um, other struggles of being at DTTB? My personal struggle would be working away from my family. Uh, there are days when you feel like you're alone, and you have realizations like you are able to treat other people, but if one of your family members gets sick, you cannot help them physically because of the distance. Uh, other. Uh, other struggle would be siguro in terms of medical knowledge because as doctor to the bar, we are also limited with our medical knowledge. We are still general practitioners. So we have to use our resources. We have to tap with our friends who are undergoing residency training. And it is not a bad thing after all to ask for help. Okay, so remember when you are able to help and remember when you should ask for help. I yes. think that's a very important thing, not only in medicine, but also in other aspects of the 
life right now. Yes. There's a time when you are the one giving help, and there's also a time when you need help yourself. And also, there's no so, mention uh, of, let's say, pride. There's no such thing here because the goal is for the overall well-being of our patients in the future. And um, for that, um, with that reason alone, um, we should always ask for help when we do need help. In relation to your earlier answer, Doc, uh, you talked about the struggle of being away from your family. How often can a DTTB go back to his hometown or go back to his home? Is there like a, a break time in that three-year period or is that continuous? Okay, for the doctors in the barrios, uh, annually, we are given 15 days sick leave and 15 days um, uh, uh, special privilege, uh, five days special privilege leave and 15 days vacation leave, just like a normal um, employee. So you can use this leave in order to go home to your certain, uh, to your... Uh... However, with the travel restrictions today due to the pandemic, we were not able to use these privileges that we have because, of course, if we have to go back, then we will be quarantined for 14 days. So it you will get the leave credits that you are able to abide so in my almost two years of experience i only returned once palang to my province i think that really puts things into perspective now how uh this is a noble job you learn a lot you work with a lot of people but also it comes with its great challenges not only when it comes to access when it comes to connection, but also personal struggles. Thank you very much for bringing that into life, Doc. How do you feel about this, Rems? So, how do you feel about the DTTB program now, considering what Doc has said so far? Well, <laughs> I guess now, still considering, still considering it, because yes, we discussed a lot of the struggles, and if ever I would apply for the program, what 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 I would face as a future. Um, uh, as a future health officer in the community. And I guess those struggles really put into perspective um, a lot of my thoughts. But with struggles, I believe there are also some rewards. So Doc, I'd like to pass the ball to you. What is the most rewarding thing when you're a doctor to the barrio? Satisfaction. Although doctors in general receive this kind of appreciation, the satisfaction, whenever our patients say even the basic thank you. But it is a different level when those words are coming from people who are literally walang wala. And they are even people who are very, very grateful as they say it is their first time to see a doctor in their entire life and it hits differently. And I think that is the most rewarding thing of being a DTTV. Yes, Thank so you I very guess, much. I guess that's also so true, Doc, because um, it's really different when, you when you're a person and you go to a place where there are a lot of medical professionals ready to see you compared to those people who really are grasping at straws in terms of their context. And I guess that satisfaction is indeed very rewarding to receive that appreciation. And maybe more for that, Doc, you're also working with a community. You work for the health with the community. And I guess that also provides a satisfaction, especially um, on more of the public health side of things. So yes, Doc, thank you. Thank you so much. 
that also goes to show that uh, uh, Philippines, in terms of healthcare, has still a very long way to go. But we are taking steps, and we are gonna get there someday. So, doc, as a doctor to uh, the barrio, you already talked about the challenges of daily life before the pandemic. How hard? How much? Uh, what has the pandemic? What's the pandemic's effect on the daily life of the doctor to the barrio now? Uh, Pre-COVID and COVID times, definitely it has changed completely and it is more challenging during this time. Before COVID, we are more focused on common diseases in the community. But during this time, since we are working in the grassroots level of the LGU where we are assigned, we are being the incident commander for COVID-19 response in our respective municipalities. And the, the decision-making related to COVID-19 is tough. Whether it be about questions regarding returning residents or OFWs or even doing contact tracing to suspected, probable, or confirmed case and also referring cases uh, to hospitals. It is also a different today compared to the pre-COVID times. So, Doc, uh, just to uh, further that question, uh, you mentioned that you're like in charge of the whole COVID thing in certain municipalities, which people come in, which people come out. It seems like a very uh, large load to add to an already big load. So, how is it affecting your? How is it affecting? I felt Doc sigh there. <laughs> how is it affecting your time in going to far-flung areas? Because it takes time to go there and visit these areas. What? How does it affect? Uh, it, it also takes time to be to manage uh, COVID in, in, in the city or in the town. So how is it different now? Do you visit these areas less? Uh, sadly, yes. Because of the ongoing pandemic, as much as we want to have a schedule in going to far-flung areas, like we wanted to do it MWF or TTH, for example, but because of the added workload of this COVID-19 response, then we are able to go to these areas in let's say once a week or let's say twice a month which is for us very depressing to say because as doctors to the barrios that is hopefully our main goal to be able to address the healthcare to these far-flung areas but because we also need to address other issues such as the COVID-19 response then we are able to lessen our load when we go to certain apart uh, lang highlands or other islands also there so with this pandemic doc there are there's more work involved it's not just common cases anymore there's um and there's also handling things in terms of prevention and um, capacity building for the community and the health system um which would warrant a stronger health workforce to handle it now, Doc, um, you would like to get your opinion on this next question. So last June 2020, there was news that blew up about the Department of Health ordering doctors, including doctors of the barrios, to be deployed here in Cebu City due to understaffing of health workers in the area and how Cebu has reached a critical point in the rise of COVID cases. I think this critical point is happening again now with how Cebu is faring. Um, however, it was reported that these doctors were not informed properly. So, 
Um, I guess the school that asked this question is coming from a place of social media where we only see, we only process what we see. So it'll be nice to get your thoughts and opinions on this stuff. Thank you. Okay, this is a controversial topic. Last year, I believe. Well, my uh, my answer to this is that as a DTTB, the willingness to serve anytime and anywhere should not be abused by the lack of consultation and communication, or even by surprise memorandums or a threat of being charged of insubordination. And according according to the Republic Act 7305, or also known as the Magna Carta for Public Health Workers, specifically Section 3, in, we're talking about transfer or geographical reassignment of a public health worker shall not be done without the employee being informed of the reasons therefore in writing. But luckily, uh, after our statement as a batch, batch 36 and 37 were released, it was a good call for the Department of Health to revise the order and make it voluntary for doctors to the barrios to be deployed in Cebu City. So in that in that regard, it, it became uh, as opposed to mandatory. It became a choice for the doctors to go. <clears throat> Do you can you give us a rough perspective of how many doctors or, or the percentage of doctors who who opted to leave their communities, doc, or did they all choose to stay? Uh, in my knowledge, uh, all doctor to the virus refused and they stayed in within their municipalities. Which I think is based, uh, basing on your former answers, Doc, considering what you're doing as uh, people who take care of COVID in and out of the town, plus the what's happening, uh, for plus what you, what you're doing in the far-flung areas. I think it's already a lot. And considering the you are the only access to healthcare these people have, pulling you out would be a very would have a very great effect on these communities. And that's very good to know that most of you chose to uh, stay with their communities. So, yes, Doc, before we continue, I'd just like to inform you that you have so many fans in our comment section here in our Facebook Live. So, uh, before we proceed, uh, let's uh, no, say hi to them, Doc. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, I hope you are learning and uh, interested to join the program. And if you have any questions, uh, feel free to ask them and hopefully, if time permits, I, I will be able to answer them. Yes, Doc, there is actually a question here coming from our comment section and it's relevant to the answer that you gave just a while ago. The question is um, from James Salomon, just curious about the state of vaccine hesitancy in your area, especially that rollout is now about to begin. All right. Uh, this is a, a question or a situation that we are currently in. So it is very common for vaccine hesitancy within our communities. So most especially those in the far-flung areas, uh, those uh, senior citizens and, and the indigent population. So it we already do our master listing of the priority groups that must be given the vaccines. But uh, as we do our health teaching to these areas, we can see that by survey alone, they really have the hesitation of ha having the COVID-19 vaccination. So what we do now is to strengthen our health education of why there is a need for these vaccines to be given to specific 
groups such as the senior citizens or the indigent population, or even more so for the healthcare workers. Considering this hesitancy, Doc, what are the steps that uh, DOH has taken in order to uh, widen the information uh, about these vaccines and why they're important? Has there been uh, any? Uh, the DOH has actually been doing information dissemination campaigns, whether be it in social media or even through us because they are being channeled through the rural health offices, the municipal health offices. So we have, we have been given the chance and the privilege or the option rather to do the health teaching within, um, within our own municipalities. So I think we are in line with the Department of Health that this vaccination program is very important for us to help in this COVID-19 response. I guess yeah, there has to be a lot of preparation involved for the vaccine rollout. And um, one of them is really to get people to go for the um, vaccine. And I think I think this uh, problem is uh, already existent. Said uh, it's already existent before the COVID nineteen vaccination. Uh, can you give us a state of uh, hesitancy for vaccination uh, for the vaccinations which children need? Do we still see mothers who refuse to get their children vaccinated in your communities, Doc? Uh, yes, uh, up to now there are still mothers who refuse to give their children vaccines, even if these are already been well studied well-established vaccines. So if you look at it, how much more to COVID-19 vaccines, which are new and uh, novel. So uh, it's very critical for us to have this health education and how to properly inform about their health options. I think that's really important in the community level because most of what I see, uh, well, at least what I see in social media or in TV, their, uh, their uh, statements or their explanations are very technical about how what the RNA vaccine is, how it's made, and why it's made so fast. So I think there's a need to make that uh, easier to digest at the community level, at uh, yeah, in, in terms of dissemination. Uh, yes. Considering. No, and, no. Um, sorry. No, let's, I'm just gonna mention lang na the person who asked the question on vaccine hesitancy um, in the area, Doc James Salomon, is actually a CIM alumnus. So, yes, hello, Doc James. We hope that Doc Alfie was able to answer your question. Uh, just to, uh, uh, proceeding to a different question, Doc, just to uh, get your opinion on this. Uh, how do you think the DTTB will fare in the next uh, two years, considering that uh, studies project that we won't be able to uh, go back to our economic status until 2023? Like, what is... Uh, how does the DTTB program work? Like in the uh, three-year, uh, there's a three-year contract, but every year there are DTTBs, right? So uh, are those based solely on uh, the number of doctors needed or is it affected by the budget that the DOH has? So the national budget of the Philippines is being prioritized by lawmakers annually to where it is much needed. And I think that a nation is built with human resources to be able to properly And as they say, health is wealth. And it has been 38 years since Dr. Juan Fabier established the DTTB program. And up to this day, the DTTB program is still here standing still serving the community. 
So with that in mind, I believe that the national government, particularly the Department of Health, have allocated right amount of funds for the program because it wouldn't last long, this long 38 years, if it wasn't a priority, it being priority by the Department of Health. And even during this time of pandemic, uh, the, the application process is still uh, here. And in fact, in Region 7 alone, we have 10 new DTTBs serving the region. So I guess uh, the program is very strong and hopefully it would continue for a longer years or even a century if possible. I think that's a very good thing to hear now, considering the, the, people, the state of mind people are in right now. They're in a state of uh, uncertainty. And that, certain, uh, that, uh, that statement gives us some sort of ease that this, uh, our communities in the far-flung areas will continue to be served for the years to come, even with the difficulties. Yes, and it's also um, nice to know that there are doctors that are still very willing to serve the communities. Um, even though we are in this pandemic right now, there are 10 applicants, right, Doc, that um, are willing to go through this program. And I hope that more in the future will be interested because I certainly am. Uh, uh, but talking uh, again about resources, Doc, uh, most DTTB, uh, this, this is another question from medical school. Most DTTB find it difficult that marginalized areas remain very hard to reach and health facilities are not equipped with supplies and equipment necessary to deliver quality care. As a doctor who worked in such areas, what do you think needs to be improved in these areas? What can the DOH do in order to improve healthcare provision to these people? Uh, I think uh, what the thing that I need to improve is first, increasing the human resources for health. Uh, this is to narrow the gap of healthcare providers to popul uh, community population, meaning in simple terms, increasing the number of doctors, nurses, midwives in the community setting. So that is very important to improve. Second is that delivering healthcare services must be available in terms of medicines, supplies, and medical equipments. And also in the LGU level is increasing the local budget allocated for health. So ideally, it must be 15% of the local budget must be allocated for health. But in reality, it is not actually what is happening. So as doctors in the community, we can only do so much. But rather, we have to work hand-in-hand hand with the local government officials to be able to improve the healthcare delivery within our community. On that note, Doc, uh, considering uh, this, uh, just uh, a commentary, no, na, uh, this really shows that people who say health is not political, you should reconsider that statement because health is, is greatly affected by politics. So considering that, Doc, during these uh, budget hearings for the municipality, Are the doctors of the barrio consulted about the uh, about the allocation for health or what's needed in the community? <clears throat> yes, uh, there is what we call local health board. If the LGU tackles uh, concepts that are related to health, then most definitely the doctor in that municipality is included in that conversation. And it is really up to the doctor how to defend why these certain medications <laughs> or equipment is needed within the community why we need to build more health stations, why we need to address this kind of medical concern. Because if the doctor is not 
persuasive enough, then of course the LGU would also be reluctant and not be doing anything. So aside from being clinical as a DTTB, you also have to be political in a way. So I, I agree with Jeff's statement that health is political. Yes, Doc, I actually agree also that health is political because um, during my undergraduate years, we learned about the six building blocks of health. And you, yes, you did mention some of those factors. The fact that there has to be capacity building for the health workforce, there has to be capacity building for the availability of medicines and medical technology, as well as health financing and leadership and governance. And after all, we can see, and I, I saw personally when I was studying different communities that um, financing and leadership really earmark a lot of the health expenditures. And um, as a doctor to the barrier, you did mention a while ago that if um, you yourself are not persuasive to the authorities to allocate this budget, to allocate this budget to build health capacities, then there might be significant changes that would occur that we might not expect um, in the community. So yes, Doc, um, as a medical student right now and as a future health professional, I really say that health is indeed political. And I guess just to um, just to move forward from this question, uh, what if uh, different politicians of that locality, let's say there is a health-related um, issue like um, procurement that has to be addressed, and um, politicians, let's say in the local health board, agree or disagree. How should a DTTB handle the situation if there is a disagreement? Uh, I believe in due process and constant communication. So whenever there are things that are being disagreed by the uh, municipal health doctor and the local government unit, uh, it has to be talked about. It has to be settled in. And you have to let them understand why this is important. These things are important for the community. So as long as you know in your heart that you are doing this for the population, for the community, and you, there is no what we call as uh, illegal acts. So just do your best. Hopefully that this uh, LGU would agree to your plans. So it's a matter of communication and uh, constantly uh, reminding them that it's important. Uh, considering uh, you talking about the, uh, the relationship of a, of a DTTB to the LGU doc uh, brings up a question, also a question given to us. What is the level of autonomy that a DTTB has? Are you directly under the DOH or are you also under the LGU? This is also a common um, misconception or confusion rather. Uh, technically, we are employed under the Department of Health, but we also have a memorandum of agreement with the local government unit. So uh, as a DTTB, you are actually both serving two birds the LGU and the DOH, but uh, most definitely we are more of the DOH personnel than the LGU level. Okay, uh, so the LGU can uh, cannot uh, mandate uh, certainly DTB to uh, to follow a specific schedule or something like that. Though. Yes, uh, if it contradicts with the memorandum of agreement given by the Department of Health, then. Uh, the DOH will always prevail comparing to the LGU Memorandum of Agreement. 
So yes, doc. So in terms of um, your work status, you are employed by the DOH and just collaborating with the local government. Yeah, okay. So it's understandable. So doc, so, uh, this next. Uh, doc, uh, moving on to a more uh, controversial question. Uh, in recent events, red tagging of certain workers in the community. Uh, the recent events of red tagging of workers in the community. How do you feel as a doctor to the barrio uh, who frequents far-flung areas to provide medical services? Uh, in, in light of recent events, do you fear for your safety or do you feel the same as you had before? Well, it is it is uh, common to be concerned about your safety. Uh, in general, no one can give you 100% assurance of protection, whether you are a doctor, a politician or a normal citizen of the community, you can be red tagged. But with the DOH, it is specifically written in our memorandum of agreement that anything that is threat to the safety of the DTTB, then he, he or she can be immediately or automatically pulled out from that municipality. So safety is a number one concern. DTTB will be transferred or reassigned from one LGU to another. So yes, Doc, considering this, um, considering the DOH's um, mandate, it is really important for you to be safe and it also um, for those in the future, for those people who are considering, me included, um, we really know that um, the DOH is on our side and are concerned for our safety. Um, Doc, regarding um, our uh, next question, uh, regarding the setup of the different of the different uh, organizations surrounding you as a doctor to the barrio um some again as what we see we see things from social media and we see that doctors of the barrios are let's say um unwilling pawns or we can say um work <laughs> members of the workforce like major strong wording shapero um, let's just go with it um, in this time of the pandemic. So what is your um, what is your opinion regarding this? So the term unwilling pawns, I think not with that particular intention. Uh, what really happened, especially during this time of pandemic, is that it is just a reflection of how uh, the lacking of health manpower, especially in the public sector, and in how in our medical community, public health is not a priority even before the pandemic. Hence, the Department of Health had to resort to maximizing the available health human resources. So I think the term should not be unwilling pawns, but they had, not with that particular intention, but they had no choice. Rather. But to mobilize the people on the ground. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, sir. And also, I believe that the DOH has the mandate to actually mobilize the people because they do have the research and the evidence on the moves that they are trying to make. So um, maybe let's just uh, uh, ask it as it is. Yeah. Also, these are not normal times. These are difficult times, which calls for very difficult decisions to be made as well. So we, yeah. Considering, uh, moving on to uh, another question, Doc. Uh, considering what we have <clears throat> talked about so far, about uh, the DTTB doing a lot of things in the community, like uh, 
which sometimes they are not uh, they have not received training for so what certain aspects in medical education and medical practice should be improved so that world-class high-quality healthcare would be given to these communities our current uh, in the philippine setting our current medical education is very anchored and shaped into the big four uh, internal medicine pediatrics surgery and obstetrics and gynecology so it is my fervent hope that medical schools will allocate equal importance to preventive and community medicine especially in preparing for the upcoming universal health care law and preventive medicine is as important as curative medicine i think that's an, a very important point to uh to underscore the uh you know like uh medical education in the philippines is uh It's more geared towards the clinical setting, like when you are in residency or in clinics. And the non-clinical uh, specializations are seen uh, are seen with lower regard than uh, those uh, those uh, specializations. But I think there needs to be a realization or a uh, a restructuring of medical education in such a way that prior uh, that gives a highlight to all of this, because. Uh, Community medicine, family medicine—they're much needed fields as much as you need a specialist. Yes, and um, taking care of the health of a community does not just involve the doctors; it also involves a healthcare team, um, the nurses, the midwives, the health system in general, and that's not necessarily tackled in medical school. And it's not even tackled, let's say, uh, with the government right now. Since we see that um, public health is not is held in um, a lower regard uh, compared to let's say those specializations in the hospitals, which is which is I think is quite sad considering what's happening in the pandemic right now shows us just how much impact public health could have on the lives of everyone because this is a public health emergency and because of our lack of preparation in terms of public health we have been suffering for a year. People are dying and all of that. So this, I think, this should put things into perspective as to the importance of public health. So, Adok, just a follow-up question before we proceed. I think our last is it our last question next, reps? Um, it's the last question from our medical schools, but maybe we can answer some of the questions from the comments later. But we'll uh, see. Okay. So, how how does the DTTB work with a, a nurse deployment program? Though? Do you have a say on? How many nurses are needed in a specific community, or do you get to assign a nurses to specific areas which are needed, or is it the LGU or the DOH doing that? So the nurse deployment program or NDP is also under the Department of Health, uh, just like the DTTBs. They are uh, under the Department of Health, but being deployed to certain municipalities or LGUs. And in terms of number, it is also the Department of Health who allocates the number of nurses being deployed to these areas. Once we are in the LGU level, we work hand in hand. Okay, I would like to clarify this: that nurses do not work for the doctors; they work with the doctors. We work hand in hand with these nurses as well as the midwives, the sanitary inspector, the medical technologists, and everyone in the healthcare. So we work hand in hand in order to achieve the holistic approach to the community setting. Yes, if I, I the think ultimate that. goal is sorry. If the ultimate yeah, goal, goal is the health of the community, the health of the patient, 
it has to be a collaborative effort with the doctors, the nurses, the midwives, and everyone involved in the health system. So yes, look, I guess this is more pronounced in a profession such as the doctor to the barrio because you get to interact with those people very much more often and in greater detail compared to, let's say, in a hospital or clinical setting. Need, need. It's, it's not a one-person job. It takes a lot of people to serve a lot of people as well. So moving to uh, the next or the last question given to us by, oh, it's already our last, nearing our end. <laughs> uh, the last question, uh, what do you think the government needs to improve in the DTTB program to make recru- recruitment of DOH more encouraging, uh, a more encouraging career path to physicians and aspiring doctors? Yes, and that's also a question for me (laughs) since uh, I am interested to take in the program. So I guess uh, one thing to make it more encouraging future generation doctors is really the awareness of the importance of public health. uh, As mentioned earlier, we live in a society where newly licensed doctors are pressured to undergo uh, specialization training because it is a common path for most doctors. Although we respect and highly understand the importance of specialized doctors as well, but aspiring doctors should realize that hospital is not the only path for a doctor. You may proceed to clinical research, you may proceed or even to public health or serving the community, and which, is, which is both important and as important as going to residency training. So, so yes, uh, we have to know how important it is to serve um, the communities and um, that is very much more pronounced now that we're in the pandemic. We see um, the groups of people, the minorities, those who are marginalized, those who are most affected by this pandemic and how they themselves really need um, the assistance coming from a program such as the Doctors of the Marios. So with that, Doc, thank you so much for your answer. Thank you, thank you, Doc. Uh, just uh, one more. I think uh, it's also uh, important to underscore that uh, Doctor's statement uh, goes uh, also connects to what he said earlier about the need for a certain doctor-to-patient ratio and the career path which doctors take. Many doctors take the clinician path, uh, and not all people who need service are able to go to these specialized hospitals where they are in. So I think that's also an important way of looking at the ratio one is to 33,000 but not every one of those doctors are able to be to serve the number of people which they which need service so we really have a lot to improve as a community perhaps do we have any questions from the uh, comment section of the live do we do we let's check out the live if there are Okay, there was this question that I saw in the live a while ago regarding changes to the program um, between pre-COVID and COVID times. And I think Doc already answered this a while ago. So um, Doc, would it be okay for you to give us like a quick rundown on the changes just to, re- just to um, reiterate that for our audience? Okay, uh, there are a lot of changes uh, actually in the TV program. Uh, first of all is the selection process. Uh, as mentioned earlier, 
uh, before COVID, it was the national DOH that handles the application process. But now, due to travel restriction, it is being uh, given to the regional offices. So that is uh, the number one uh, change in the DTTB program. Secondly, is also in terms of our master's degree program. Instead of doing it in a face-to-face -face manner, we do it in a uh, online modular approach. But hopefully, we'll be able to uh, go to Manila once again to able to have the face-to-face -face interaction with our mentors from the University of the Philippines. Also, in terms of work, uh, very different. Instead of we are more focused on the building and rebuilding the community aspect, but now we are half uh, we are half-hearted to uh, concern about COVID-19 response and as well as doing our what we are passionate about, which is serving the community instead uh, about their healthcare needs. So a lot a lot of changes compared to pre-COVID and COVID times. So if I may. That is why it is very important that every one of us must under uh, must have the COVID-19 vaccination if we need to go back to what we call as our normal life, our transitioning back to our normal life. So uh, I'd like to segue the importance of COVID-19 vaccination at this time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Doc. Uh, we have, I think, another question from uh, the comments section. Uh, this question comes from Hazel Webos. Doc, stay in Pubakayo sa Municipal Health Office. Do they provide a place for you when you are a DTTB? Okay. Uh, con uh, included in our memorandum of agreement with the LGU that they must also provide an area or a place for you to stay. So ideally, in our case, when we arrive at our own municipalities, uh, you may spend at least uh, a night or two or even a week most in your RHUs because it is the time that you will look for an area where you will be renting either an apartment, a house, or a boarding house. But if the LGU already nakakita na daan sila o place for you, then upon arrival to the LGU, then you can stay at the uh, assigned apartment or boarding house where you will be staying. I think that's also an important question for those people considering. Okay, it's a new place where you go to, and you don't, you don't really know where to. Yeah. Yes, and um, considering the national, um, the that the choosing of the area is national, then it would need some time for the DTTB to um, to properly get settled in his area. So yes, for um, his Hazel, I hope that um, Doc able to answer your question. Thank you very much, Doc, for spending time with us this afternoon. Sadly, I'm sure that a lot of people still have a lot of questions, but sadly, uh, we are already only given a specific amount of time. Doc, uh, if you have uh, any closing statement or any message to the viewers right now, uh, uh, you may g give it right now. Uh, uh, any closing message or yeah. And also, so, if you have any contact information, if people still have more questions regarding the program, it would be nice if you mention them now so that people will uh, ask. So, uh, DTTB or Dr. Sudabario program, uh, away from my comfort zone and far from being the typical doctor in white coat, uh, I opted a life working with 
in my maong pants and plain t-shirt as a public health doctor in the rural communities in the Philippines. Hopefully, this online talk serve as an eye opener and as well as an ear opener to everyone the, the, of the current state of our uh, healthcare system in the Philippines that we need more doctors in their primary care as gatekeepers in the community. Health requires a balance between curative medicine and an equally important preventive medicine. So thank you very much everyone for listening. And if you have any questions more regarding the DTTB program, I am more than willing to answer them. You can message me in Facebook. That's Alfi Kalingasyon. Thank you very much everyone and mabuhay ang mga Pilipinong manggagamot. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Doc, for giving us your precious time today, considering everything that you do in the community. Before we officially end, we would like to present a certificate to uh, Dr. Uh, Alfie for uh, sparing his time with us this afternoon. The certificate reads, Certificate of Appre Appreciation, this certificate uh, is proudly presented to Dr. Alfie F. Kalingasyon for sharing their invaluable time and effort as guest speaker of the APMC Student Network Visayas Regional Health Policy Committee. Tell Med about it. Given this on the 27th day of February 2021 at Cebu City, signed Odyssey Key, APMC SN Visayas Regional Health Policy Com Committee Coordinator, signed Edgar Frederick E. Krios, APMC SN Vice President for Visayas. Thank you very much for giving us your time this afternoon, Doc. Thank you very much. It is truly an honor and privilege to be talking to everyone, especially young, brilliant doctors who would soon uh, to choose their path in their career. So, Rebs, I am hoping someday <laughs> you, would, you would choose this path with us. Yes, Doc. We'll I'm sure after have... the whole... <laughs> I'm sure after this time. whole talk, Doc, that... Rams is not the only person encouraged to take up that path. Thank you very much, Doc. Thank you very much, Doc. And to our audience here in our live, thank you so much for um, taking the time to listen to us uh, speak about the Doctors of the Boys program. I hope that this podcast, this talk, has made you learn something and maybe even inspired you to, to consider applying for this program. Again, mabuhay ang mga Pilipino manggagamot. This has been Miguel Tristan Herbalde, CIM EBL2. This has been Jeffrey Isaac Albert Ramirez Damayo, CIM EBL2. Thank you very much for tuning in this afternoon. We hope that what you have learned this afternoon will uh, will fuel your uh, thirst for learning more. Mabuhay ang mga Pilipinong manggagamba. And with APMC SN Visayas, thank you so much for this opportunity. Viva Visayas! Viva Pesayas! Thank you so much, Doc. Thank you, Rex. <laughs>
Um, thank you guys. Yeah. Lagan <laughs> kayo questions. Congrats guys. Thank you so much, Doc. Thank you. Thank you so much, Doc. Picture to all. Take us 